Welcome to Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about what it means to lead, why their leadership identities matter, and how they leverage their leadership identities for career and business success. Some of these interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. In this episode, I go back to a topic I touched on for episode four, leadership identity. But my guest and I will also dive deeper to tackle the topic of how to leverage your leadership identity so that you get the best results for you and your organization. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. My guest today has completed a PhD on the topic of career development, immersing himself in research and practice centred on how the world of work is evolving. This journey has taken him to the UK, Canada and Bhutan, where conversations and research shaped his thinking about the importance of meaningful work in leading a fulfilling life. He now runs a consulting business which assists numerous organisations through transformational change, commonly as a result of industry reform, disruption or shifting organisational strategy. With all his spare time, he often gives keynote speeches. You may even have seen him presenting his TEDx talk titled Reframing Work, where he challenges the dominant negative narrative about work as something we have to do. Dr Edwin Trevor Roberts, thanks for coming on the show. Edwin, can you tell me a little bit about your past and how you got to the position you're in now? Sure. Well, um, look, I'm going to give the unusual answer here and say that uh, nepotism is the uh, is is the reason I got into this. So, I have the privilege that my um, that my father was one of the very first people in the 1980s to do what's called outplacement. He worked for Pete Marwick, the the forerunner to KPMG back in the 80s, and from that, finally took um, went out on his own, started his own business in uh, in the mid 90s. I joined him in 99. We worked together for 10 years, and then I took over running the business and growing it into a national national firm. And what really got me in, I mean, you know, you know, working in the beginning was a family business. I'm the only one left in it. So it's barely a family business anymore. Um, what got me in was, was, was the opportunity. Of course, I grasped that. But what kept me was seeing the impact that we were having on people. And at a ripe age in my, in my mid-20s, I was able to see people who are experiencing the fourth most stressful thing in their life, that is a redundancy, coming into the office and having that that, that negative, sort of almost sad, anxious demeanor about themselves, they'd walk in, they'd have a coaching session, and they'd leave just bouncing down the hallway with positiveness again. And I thought, wow, there's something magical that happens here. And so that's when I made the real conscious decision to look into this, to learn about it, because I wanted to know what was going on, what was happening. And that's when I started my uh, doctoral program, went across and sat under one of the gurus in the field in, uh, in Canada, and came back and was able to incorporate some of this thinking and ideas into, into growing the business. And so today, as a, um, as a business, what we do, there's, there's, we're a, as a career transition and talent development company, we've got sort of two sides to our business. The half is supporting organizations through the restructure process. Um, and we look after those people that have lost their jobs as part of that. Now, whether that could be one person leaving through redundancy, it could be entire factory shutdowns, it could be hundreds of people across the country going at once. And then the other half of us side of what we do is more in this career, the stuff kind of we're talking to this career development space is how do we get people to experience meaningful work? Because I do believe, and the thing that the, the flag that holds us 
um, going is that we believe that everyone has the right to experience and to create meaningful work. So how do we do that? How do we get organizations to assist with that? Edwin, what is meaningful work? What does that term mean? It's always an interesting one. And, and, and the, the answer is here, and I'm not going to be glib in this response, but the answer depends on the person. There is no one thing. Because when you think about the concept of meaning, meaning doesn't exist by itself. Meaning is an attribute we ascribe to something. So if we take, for example, um, we, do you remember the old classic movie? You know, I've thought about this. Remember the old classic movie, Gods Must Be Crazy? And, uh, and they threw the Coke bottle out from the aeroplane and it landed in the, in the Kalahari bush. And, and I remember this. I've got um, South African background and Welsh ancestry. Um, and so for, for the Westerner, that Coke bottle was a, it was a holder of a liquid. But for those that are landed upon, it ended up becoming a, an artifact and an heirloom and, in fact, something quite dangerous for them. So we ascribe meaning. We ascribe meaning to things. So when it comes to meaningful work, it depends for each of us about what that, where work fits into our lives. And for some people, work, in terms of one of our life domains, is a really, really important thing. For them, it's a, they very much define themselves by their work, by what they do. Whereas for others, it's the old means to an end kind of a, it's, you know, it's important, but it's not, it's not everything. So meaningful work comes down to understanding what are those sources of meaning that drive meaning and then creating practical strategies to experience that sense of meaning in the everyday. That's a very interesting segue into um, the discussion of leadership identity um, that we're looking at today. You're saying that meaning in work for some people is about forming an identity that is linked quite hard with their career, what's on your business card is really who you are. What do you think it has means to have an identity that is linked with your career and, and sort of further to grow that career and have an identity that is your leadership identity? That, um, the example of business card is, is a great example to raise. It's, it's, what, it's what we call the objective success. So we often measure our success objectively by the business card, the title, the car, the office, the those objective trappings, if you like, of life. As we've gone through the last several decades, those have started to to dwindle away a little bit, but they're still there. You know, you read you read the Fin Review, and there's yet another um, you know brilliant person, you know, startup, and it's just raised fifty million dollars, and we think, wow, this person's amazing. You know, I wish I could do that. So those objective measures are still there, but ultimately, the things that last, the things that have the greatest impact, are the subjective measures. The sense of what does this mean for me? My sense of success, of motivation, of who am I in this process. So the link between our career identity and our leadership identity is integral, especially for those that are moving into some form of leadership role. Often, it's um, we aspire to these. I'll never, never forget you know, the, the classic thing. I'll, um, we hear, you know, someone um, young, a, you know, a, a young person joins an organization in their early 20s and, and they get asked, and I remember this one exact um, example. This HR manager asked this young person, "You know, what's your career aspiration? What do you want to What do you want to do, you know, do one day?" And this person said, "I'd really want to be the CEO." You know, the classic response, right? So the HR manager picked up the phone, called the CEO, and said, "I'm sitting here chatting with James. He really wants to be the CEO. Can he come and work shadow you?" And the CEO goes, "Yeah, sure." And James is like, "Oh my god, this is <laughs> I can't believe this is happening." Anyway, goes off, shadows the CEO for a couple of days. Comes back a week later, sits down with the HR manager, and HR manager says, so do you still want to be the CEO? And he goes, no way. <laughs> 
no way. I had no idea about the pressure, the complexity, the boredom that comes from that um, from that role. So we hold this leadership notion up from a very early age as the, as the thing to aspire to. When I'm a leader, I'll have made it. When I'm a leader, I would have it, it, I would have been a greater sense of me. I would have been able to take all of my skills and I can say to someone, yes, I'm leading. I'm leading a team. I'm leading an organization. So we hold this leadership identity as separate to ourselves, as this thing we need to strive toward. And as a result, when we get there, we make mistakes because that very nature of what we thought we should be is not what it is to be a leader. So how do we not end up in that pitfall? How do we figure out what it is to be a leader and understand that role properly before we form our aspirations? The most important part in this in this process is to go through some mechanism and this and this process here and you know then these these recordings is, is part of that is to try and understand what does leadership mean to you and as a corollary from that what are those influences that influenced me so I know what I think a leader is. So take take for example, um, I had a really early um, early experience. My very first leadership objective role, if you like, was when I was when I was at school and I did I was in the Navy cadets, right? And um, so that was a great way in in that time to really build a thick skin in terms of being <laughs> being in that. And and in and in year in year twelve, I ended up becoming the cadet officer, right? The fact that I was the only year twelve. In the Navy cadets, you know, let's leave that aside. Anyway, let's hope that they saw something in me. Um, and I became the, the cadet officer. And what that fundamentally taught me that year, it fundamentally taught me how not to lead. Because what it was to be able to tell people through authority, tell people by position, meant that, yes, they would do it once, they might do it twice, but they sure as hell won't, won't do it a third time. And so leadership, what are those experiences that each of us have that define what we think leadership is? Was it that our first experience of a manager was quite autocratic, was someone who viewed life and work as two completely separate things? And when you're into work, you work, 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 and you don't leave until five o'clock. These experiences that we have define how we think leadership is. We just don't realize it. So one of the questions to reflect back on is, who were the earliest leaders that you worked with? What were they like and how have they shaped your sense of what you think leadership truly is? So really about being aware what your leadership identity is that you're trying to form and how you may have formed that. So being aware of what those influences are, as you say, reflecting on your history, where you've seen leadership and experienced leadership before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the other thing there is we think leadership is a fixed place. So one of the really interesting things about identity is identity is not fixed. Identity is a fluid process. We never have one identity. It keeps changing and evolving with every single experience that we have. So when we think about leadership, it's not a destination. Leadership is a, is a, is a journey, if you like, that we go through. It's a continuously evolving thing that, that we have. One of the best um, descriptions I ever had on this was a, um, an American sociologist called Herb Gelat. And he talks about how do we live in with positive uncertainty. And he has four or three maxims. And one of them is that I always remember, he says, know what you want, but hold it lightly. Know what you want, but hold it lightly. And so when it comes to us as, as, as leaders, know you want to be a leader, but hold what that is lightly so that you can keep changing and evolving through these um, processes that we go through. There's a couple of reasons why we don't keep evolving. Um, the first of all is that we 
we often actually don't know how to reflect upon our experiences, how to change our identity, how to shift how we think what we knew. Because as soon as we have to let go of something, we're then consciously incompetent. And none of us like that. It's a really tough place to be in. But being unconsciously incompetent as a leader is worse. Well, the technique to develop for ourselves techniques for reflection is, is, is really important. And, and the second thing we need to do is build habits, habits through which we can inculcate these self-awareness processes in the everyday. One of these the great, great stories I've, I've, I've told examples of this is this lady who, when she gets home, the first thing she does, she doesn't even say hello to her family. The first thing she does, she's go upstairs, has a bath, glass of wine, relaxes, and then goes down and sees her family. So her, her intermediate space. I know um, the person who um, who drives home. There's a certain tree, and every day they stop under that tree, pull out their notebook for five minutes, and just reflect upon what happened for them that day. That's a great example. And one of my personal favourites is pick a day in the week where you take yourself out for breakfast. Go and have breakfast with yourself. It's a great conversation, right? It's a really good conversation. I mean, you go there and you just sit and reflect on how are you going, what's happening, try and have that space to think and solve a particular problem. That one hour can arguably be the difference between being a good leader and a great leader. So there are a few practical strategies. Taking some time for yourself to have quiet space. Mm. Yeah, but but use it um, use it wisely though. You know, you need to. We, it's all fine to have quiet space, but but give yourself a question to try and answer. Like if you go for breakfast with yourself, write down one question at the top. Always a question, never a statement. One question at the top of your pad of paper and reflect upon that. So we're focusing our reflection rather than pontificating widely about the universe and everything else. So it's a focused, quiet time so that you can really get something from it, some some outcome from that time where you don't have any other noise. Yes, yes. Edwin, how would you describe your own leadership identity? Evolving, evolving, I would, I would have to say. Um, leadership, leadership for me is fundamentally about getting out of the way. I really think what leadership is allows people to do the great work that they're capable of. You know, people, I'm, I'm, and look, I'm cursed with optimism, right? But I actually really, truly believe that people wake up in the morning and go, I want to do great work. People don't wake up in the morning and go, okay, I'm going to stuff something up on purpose today. There might be a few narcissists, fair enough. But the vast majority of people want to do great work. And they get to the end of the day and their partner says, how was your day? And you go, oh, it was terrible. You know, what is it that's going on? And I think so much of that is about leadership is about creating that environment, that space that allows people to do the great work that they don't realize that they're capable of. It also means, for me, it means deeply understanding the people around you, deeply understanding the people around you. So you know what it is that drives them, that motivates them, that really gets them going. So for me, and what I believe, you know, about leadership is that we need to build up this leadership identity across the experiences um, of our life till we get to the point where we realize the thing, this leadership identity that we've built, the next step, the next stage is to let it go. The next stage is to completely dissolve that leadership identity. And then when we get to that, and I'm definitely not there, when we get to that, that's when we become a true leader. So how do you keep control of that then? If you're letting everybody do what they do best in an organization that has, you know, 100 staff, 1,000 staff, how do you keep control of that organization? Now, I'm not suggesting that leadership is... Um, creating a you know a Sunday school picnic where we're all just just having a lot of fun and just just doing 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 whatever 
we as leaders need to set that set that direction upon which where we're going so that within certain parameters, within certain um, boundaries, if you like, people can do their best work. So we have to create that or articulate that that narrative for the future that's compelling for people to go, oh, I agree with that future and I can see how I can contribute towards that. So that, those, and those parameters look like all the, all the classic things we would look for in, um, in, in management, if you like. It's a vision. It's a strategy. It's performance criteria. It's the values and the culture that hold. It's the systems that hold the organization together. They're still critically important, but it's establishing them as parameters, as boundaries, not as dictatorial processes for people to exactly follow. That's where we become unstuck. So as a leader, you're really focusing heavily on strategy, but you're also a sort of cultural leader, a cu- uh, someone who builds and maintains um, culture within the organisation so that I guess all the employees are happy and energised to do the work that they should want to do. There's so many um, you know, articles and so forth that talks about you know, culture eats strategy or culture trumps strategy. And, and, and I must admit, I still go back to the really early work of strategy, structure, culture as a triangle, that these three inform and influence them. But as leaders, when we start out as leaders, often we're focused, we focus very, very much on, 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 the, on the structure, the processes of getting something done. Then we move towards, well, strategy, it's that direction. But ultimately, it's how the people interact and how they work with each other. The culture piece, if we want to use a broad term, is the most, most, most important thing. And when it comes to our leadership and our leadership identity, there's a really interesting and overlooked link between the place within which we enact our leadership and the way we enact our leadership. So you think about some organizations that are very highly competitive, profit-focused, really driven organizations, and I don't, don't need to name any, leadership looks different in there. And if you come in as a leader, after a while, you'll start to behave and act and be part of that way in which leadership is done, which is why often people moving from one organization to another organization either really struggle or flourish. I've seen people that have come out of an organization and their, 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 their manager executive have said, oh, this person isn't particularly good. We're letting them go for all of these reasons. We've helped them to again get another role in another place. And the feedback is, oh my gosh, this is the best person we've ever had. Why couldn't we have had them five years ago? And I always look at that going, hang on, same person. What's going on here? And it's about the it's not the answer, but a big part of it is about that sense of place, that the scene, if you like, within which our leadership is enacted. So looking for places, A, that we feel a deep resonance with, I think is very, very important, but also being aware of, is this place in which I'm leading changing me in some way? How is it influencing my thought? How is it influencing my behavior? And, and that's okay if it is, but is that good or bad? Does that move me towards how I see myself to be as that ideal leader? I think it's pretty obvious for you, Edwin, having a PhD on the subject, how your self-insight, uh, your sense of identity within your career has developed. But how do our students develop that sense of self-identity and, and the ability to um, have self-insight? Look, if there was one word, I would say experiences. Our career today is not a linear progression. 
Our career today is fundamentally based around what I call experience sets. So every little thing or everything that we do in our career is an experience set. It could be doing an MBA. It could be going on a secondment inside your organization. It could be undertaking a project. It could be a new piece of client work, whatever. Each of these are experience sets. And the best metaphor I've got for this is my family and I got hooked on um, Lego Masters recently. Each of these experience sets are like Lego blocks. So they're a different color and we, we can build. And what that means is over time, as opportunities present their way to us, we can rearrange these Lego blocks so that we can demonstrate that we have the skills and the experience to take that next opportunity. So it is the variety of experiences, not just in work, but in life that I believe is absolutely, absolutely critical to be able to build that sense of who we are and build that ability for reflection. So I would broadly encourage everyone to do as wide as possible. So when it comes to, you know, if you're doing a study and you, you know, or or a piece of formal learning and you've got an opportunity for for an industry project, do something as wildly different as you thought you would ever be into. Go go to go to somewhere completely different. It's through these experiences. And I think about for myself, the experiences that have shaped me have been the ones, not just some of them at work, but certainly where I've been in outside of my comfort zone in a very, very, very severe way. That's where I've learned the most. So experience sets are everything for that learning. I guess it's sort of like cooking in that way. If you experience different meals from different um, cultures and you can sort of bring that back to your own list of meals that you can create and vary and and so forth that that's going to um, increase um, your ability to create food um, for your family so this this idea of getting a wide uh, breadth of experience that you can draw on in certain situations but it's, and, and what I would add into that is when you go to a restaurant and you're having your, um, um, you know, you've got a beautiful Tom Yum soup coming through, okay? it's being aware of what is in this Tom Yum soup that makes it so delicious. Is it the lemongrass? Is it the ginger? What is it that's making it so good? That's what we call learning mode. It's going into every experience with a learning mode, thinking, what can I learn? I'm going to learn from this experience. And you know, when you look at how much, I read a number about how much we spend globally on leadership development, and it was something like $400 billion or something we spend globally on leadership. It's a, it's, a, it's a really big number, right? And yet we have still have such poor leaders. One of the reasons for that is that we're not learning from the experiences we have. And while I've talked about the reflective process at the end, what research is starting to show us, equally, if not more important, is realizing up front that going into this is a learning mode. So take, for example, this little experience set that I'm having right here. Daniel, you, know, you sent me through a whole bunch of questions and I had to think quite deeply, wow, what, where are we going to go with this particular um, conversation? I had to do some, I did a bit of reading, I did a bit of learning. So I approached this thinking, wow, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to learn from this. And, and I have because of that, of that process. That's the learning mode. So, you know, be aware of the Tom Yum soup. <laughs> be open to it from the beginning. I'm going to move now to how to use that leadership identity. We're talking about leveraging the leadership identity in terms of the MBA program here at USQ. What do you think, Edwin, it means to leverage that leadership identity? I think it's a problematic sentence because our leadership identity is ultimately about the effectiveness of us as a, as a leader. So if I viewed it from that perspective, it's around how do we be as effective as we as we possibly can be as a leader, which is, of course, the whole point of an MBA program to learn that. 
this idea around our um, leveraging our leadership identity, you know, in addition to everything that we've, we've discussed so far, the, the one thing that, um, that sort of strikes me is looking at the impact that we're having. So I think the leadership identity and impact is really important. And you can view impact in terms of profitability, you can terms, terms, of, terms of outcomes, but you can also view it in terms of how am I interacting with others. So the leveraging for me is, the, is, the, is that evolution, that evolution, that constantly, constantly learning. And through those experiences, you have these aha moments. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was working um, the last few months with, uh, with an organ- a group of middle managers from an organization that their executive said to them, we want to know what this future of work is going to mean for our organization. So gave 15 of them, carte blanche, three months to go away and think about it. So I started working with them. The first meeting, they said to me, so um, future of work, Edwin, you know a bit about this. So what are we going to do? And I went, I don't know. What do you think we should do? Because this was an action learning project, right? They had to come up with it. And so we got to the end. Fast forward, presentation, amazing presentation to the executives. The CFO after, at the presentation said, I didn't know what I was expecting when I came into this, but this was way more than what I was expecting. And um, the next day, we had a debrief with the leaders and we went around the room and said to them, so how was that experience for you? And this one leader said, that was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever been through. I had to sit there. I realized that what I thought leadership was about was about getting things done because I would sit there and tick off everything I needed to do. But when it came to this project, I just had to think about it for an hour and do some research. Didn't feel like I got anywhere. And all I wanted to do was to go back and tick off those things. Then she said something. She said, but then I realized that leadership is about not knowing exactly where you're going to go. And the room goes silent and someone in the back goes, can we give you a clap? (laughs) And they spontaneously burst into applause. So this leveraging our identity is about realizing that the things that we're doing shifts the impact that we're having on others. And if we can change not just our behavior, but the way we think about ourselves, then we start to move. You see, leadership is not about doing. Leadership is about being. How am I being in this interaction? How am I being in this moment? How are others perceiving me? What am I not seeing that's going on in this context that I'm not aware of that's influencing in a negative or a positive way? That's the process of leveraging over time is learning to build this into the, um, the nano, by nanosecond by nanosecond experiences we have as we're speaking with somebody. You said leadership is about being, and I find that a, a phrase that really resonates um, with me because if you're going into an organisation and you're just saying we need to get the, these things done and being grumpy about it and, and you know dictatorial about it, you're probably not going to get anywhere or you might get those things done but not in a good way, not in a way that could be creative or a way that's going to inspire the staff. How do you maintain a positivity and then communicate that as a sort of personal brand that can be both, you know, within the organization, but also that leadership identity outside of the organization. Starting with the first half of that, the key piece of advice I would say is get out of autopilot. We come in to the, our office or to our place of work, and it's like the, 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 the environment just switches onto us onto autopilot and we just start reacting. Email comes in, this comes in, phone call comes in, conversation comes in. We go to that meeting, we go to this meeting. Our days are eight, eight, eight meetings in eight hours, back to back, no time. We don't get lunch. We get to the end and we're physically exhausted, go home. We give our worst to our family and then we do another two hours of work to catch up on our emails and then rinse and repeat. And we're in autopilot. 
the best way we can do this to maintain that positivity and to maintain a sense of energy and resilience is to get out of that autopilot stage and be aware to realize what's going on. So the state of being is a state of realization. And I think, I think leadership is about realizing who we are when we're in this working place. In terms of practically, what does that look like? Well, it depends, it depends on the person. It depends on what it is that energizes that particular person. Now, what is it that really gives you a sense of real energy and, and, and movement forward? So, so for me, um, I just love mountains. So anything where I can get out into the mountains, um, out into the bush is the thing that drives me. I love mountain biking. My son um, and my daughter, they're both amazingly good mountain bikers. This year, you know, in my in my mid-40s, I've started to learn how to do downhill mountain biking. I mean, who would think I'd be crazy enough to take up that and we're starting to do races? It's it's a whole new level of learning um, in there, but it's, 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 it's rejuvenating, it's energizing. But then the second thing I'd say in that is, um, in terms of all of this busyness is, what is something intellectually stimulating or emotionally stimulating that gives you that sense of energy and resilience? I was, I was chatting with a, a CEO just on just a couple of days ago, a very large organization, 10,000 plus staff, said to me, um, how do I maintain the, the resilience? My, my, my team are fatigued, my executive team are fatigued. And so when we talk through what she was doing, she was doing all the right things, giving, you know, making sure they had long weekends, um, making sure that there was um, some well-being mechanisms in place, um, some good psychological um, support that was in there. So everything just seemed to be there. And I said, perhaps what's missing is a spark of motivation that comes from doing a project that's bigger than what they're already doing. And she looked at me strangely. She said, are you telling, them, telling me to tell them to do more? And I said, no, I'm telling them to do different. You know, find some project that's there that's bigger than just what you're doing. Maybe you've always wanted to change the way in which, um, you know, quality management is done inside the organization. We'll go spend some time reading and researching self-driven, and it comes from that intrinsic, intrinsic motivation. So it's from there that we, we start to build those mechanisms for maintaining that positivity and that and that energy. And guaranteed, by the way, Daniel, guaranteed you don't get it right. There's just not a week by that any one of us will get it right. But just recommit. Just keep trying. Keep experimenting. It's an interesting notion um, to suggest that that staff go off and do some project of their own that that might not be is well certainly not, you know, on a list of projects that the CEO has set out for the organization. But I, I think of that as an employee myself and, and wonder if there has been a time uh, in my employment that anyone, that any manager or leader has, has said, Daniel, or even of my colleagues, what do you think we should do? What, what is it? Not, not, not in this meeting uh, or, or for, to fix this problem, but what do you think we're missing here? What could be something that we could add? Do you have any ideas? And, and, and that comes down to when you talk to the very beginning of our conversation today around meaningful work, and I believe that in our life, there are five really big questions that we need. And in fact, meaningful work is, is actually a philosophical problem. It's not a, necessarily always a practical one, although there are practical ramifications. But there are these five big questions we need to answer in life, and work helps us to answer them. It doesn't give us the full answer, but helps us. And one of the questions that you're alluding to and where this idea came from of kind of doing this other project is it's about this question of what is my contribution? You see, when we're able to use our skills, when we're able to use our expertise, we get a real buzz. We get a, a real spike of motivation and energy. And so being able to go and use that more and more 
keeps motivating us, keeps, and we get into this positive spiral upwards rather than a negative stress spiral downwards. So it ultimately comes down to the sense of contribution. We want to contribute. We like using our skills and experiences. That's what drives us. What happens if your identity is not aligned to the organization you're working with? You were talking about someone you knew of before who was very successful at a company that they moved to, but not so at the company that they began with. What happens in that um, situation where they're not aligned with their organization? Well, the rubber band problem arises. The rubber band gets stretched so far between the two that ultimately the person leaves or the organization kicks them out. If there's not an alignment between what you believe in and what the organization, or more importantly, the leaders that are representing the organization, because that's often where it is. This is not, and just because, for example, a lot of work in the health and community services space, just because you're a not-for-profit with an altruistic background doesn't mean that values are completely aligned with the behaviors represented by every single person in that organization. So values are a source of meaning for us. They're about the workplace can provide this source of meaning if our values are aligned. One of the um, really interesting people, and it's, and it's not just um, values that are to do with like social justice or like this. I, I remember one, um, one of the people I spoke with many, many years ago, her deep belief was that Australia needed a third airline. This was in the days of Ansett and Qantas. That's where we're going back to, right? So her, her value was that we're, we're being, you know, done over as the public by these expensive airfares. And so she believed in third airline. So, so then she joined an organization, which is a startup airline called Compass. You might remember that. She then gave up all of her superannuation from her previous employer. I've forgotten which one she was in, Ansett or Qantas. Went across to Compass. It then went bankrupt. She joined Compass Mark II. It then went bankrupt. Then she went to a helicopter company, but was never happy there. And then she gets this call from this guy called Brett and says, oh, we're starting, um, we're starting this new airline. Um, we're just starting off with five planes. Would you come across? She was, in, she was head of procurement. She said, yeah, I'll do that. Five planes. That's easy. I'm 62. Nice retirement gig for me. Anyway, it turns out she joined Virgin Blue, right? <laughs> and, uh, and that was the starting point. Why? Because her values were aligned to what she believed in. So it is critically important. And when you go into an organization, we need to be very open-minded. Meet the people who you're going to work with. Spend time with them to understand. We need to change how we do recruitment. That's a topic for another whole um, podcast, I'm sure. Um, but making a you know several hundred thousand dollar decision based on two hours of interviewing for me just does not seem to make sense. I've always thought it was a strange idea to my, myself in a, in a previous um, life. My work was mainly um, what you would call freelance. And so jobs were sort of acquired through conversations and reputations. Um, but but they were they were one off jobs. So you would do a job, it would last for a short period, and then you would have another job after that with a different organisation. And then when I first came to being interviewed, uh, I thought it was a very weird situation to have very constructed sent, uh, questions from a team of people who couldn't ask you anything outside these questions and then they would make a decision after talking to you for 25 minutes. Thus we work in systems. But what's interesting from that is that your ability to deliver your work and build relationships in your freelance world is a thing that kept it going. So when it comes to that, that leadership and that leadership brand, personally, I think we need to be careful of the word brand it has it has a connotation it has it has a meaning to it and and that and that meaning is typically around capitalism we think brand we think sales that that's sort of where it goes the reality though is we have this brand thing for ourselves whether we realize it or not so every interaction we have every action that we take 
adds negative or positive karma into the um, bank account, if you like, it goes up or down. So you just want more positive in the negative. How do you control that then? And, and how do you, do you, do you make it your own, that brand, um, and then, and then try and trying to say, um, sell, sell yourself, I guess, to make sure that the, that everyone who talks to you and also, you know, the, the organizations in the future that you might go to are getting your brand that's very clearly designed by you. So you have control of it. But my hesitation at the moment is I've yet to see that consciously done without obviously noticing it's being consciously done. So when we try and try and carve out this brand very clearly to say, this is who I am and this is how I'm going to act. This is the sort of stuff I'm going to post. This is the sort of things. It's, it's, it's a manufactured reality that, that comes across there. And in today's world, we look at all the, the non-work brands that are out there on social media. These are manufactured realities that are there. I think the most successful leaders are aware of it, but they're aware of it like air. Right? It's, it's not the purpose of life. It's just very hard to live without it. So it's something that's there. It might be in their background. They're, they're, they can clearly articulate their values. They can clearly articulate how they want to come across to people. They can clearly articulate what sort of impact they want to have, but it kind of stops there. They don't, the rest they do because they think it's the right thing, not because they're trying to impression manage. Having a leadership identity and, and a, a sort of ideological perspective that align with your organization is great. But what happens if you get thrust into a different context? COVID is one that, that springs to mind. Do you have to adjust your style, your identity to fit in with that context? Or do you sort of maintain that identity and never change? I don't think you have time to change. If you look at COVID, if you look at what's, what's happened here, or, or take any other major shock to the system. GFC, um, you know, anything that happens, an organizational change, a takeover, whatever, all it does is amplify what's there. It makes the good better and the bad worse. We don't have time under that intense pressure of needing to respond to reinvent ourselves. That's not, that's, it's very hard to do that because we, uh, we move from that being mode into some of that doing because you just need to. There's a, the old situational leadership. There is a time and a place to be autocratic. There's a time and a place to be collaborative. It's about knowing what's required at that particular, particular point. I think that's really a critical, critical piece. What we can do, though, is once we're through it, is A, realize when we're through it. So many organizations go through these crises, self or other manufactured, and the way in which they respond to that crisis becomes the default mode of operating for that organization moving forward. And they just lurch from manufactured crisis to manufactured crisis. And therefore, leaders work, operate in, in, in a mode of being stressed and their brain is operating in that mode of being stressed rather than coming back down and actually using that prefrontal cortex and using it wisely with a sense of discernment. So these changes, no, I think, I think we learn after because it only really makes sense in hindsight. That's how our brain works. There's not enough time in a crisis, but you were talking about earlier in the conversation, this idea of reflecting on each day and also that coupled, I guess, with this idea of going into each situation as a learner. Is it important for your leadership identity to learn and reflect and also be flexible in, in then how you're defining yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, if I can use that term? Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and, and our identity is as a, as a fluid construct, as, as this evolving construct, is that we can, it, it can shift, it can change. And in fact, one of the really interesting processes that we go through um, with our identity is to 
undertake identity work. Now, identity work is when we are uh, are testing or experimenting with a new way of of, um, of 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 being a leader or a new way of communicating. For example, we do a little little test and then we go, did that work? Did that not work? And that helps us to change it forward. So let me give you a practical example. Of that one of the things often will recommend to um, to people is to change their language. So much of who we are, how we come across, how we're perceived as a leader is based on our language. And one of the classic words, in fact, the first word to get rid of is the word busy. You know, busy. We sort of busy like cult of busyness. You know, like we wear this badge on our on our on our sleeve, and it says, "I am busy, therefore I am." You know, you see someone walking fast down the corridor. Oh, they look busy. They must be very important, you know. And yet, who do we hold up as the great leaders? Those that don't walk at a very fast pace. Those that will stop and say hello. So the key thing there is taking the word busy out. So this is a little um, identity prototype. Take the word busy out of your language for a month and see what impact that has on yourself and on others and then reflect on that. So this identity work, this experimenting is is is, is really really conscious um, and and ongoing. So in the you know in the moments of crisis and being to be able to reflect upon well what am I what am I learning through this? It's not always possible. So I want to be as purist about this, but it is ideal if one can um, look at a different way of operating because it does amplify our good traits and our poor traits when we go through moments like that. Edwin, we always end these discussions by asking um, some generic questions. The first one is, what do you believe is the difference between leading and managing? I'm going to answer this because I'm sure you have a variety of different answers. I'm going to answer it from a career development lens, if you don't mind. So there was a a, a concept coined two or three decades ago called the T-shaped career. And it was this notion of that you're either a specialist or a generalist. And classically, then the the specialist was all that technical expert, and the generalist was like that manager. Often, it was like, it was acquainted with that would work across different domains of expertise. So that was the T shaped. In today's world, where the life, the half life of knowledge is so much shorter than it ever was, where we're learning stuff just in time, not just in case we need to know it, the T shape no longer applies. And so what I describe it now is our career is more like an M shaped career, a small M where we have multiple domains of expertise. Rather than the T which had one, we have multiple. They're not as deep as the T, but there's more of them. So it might be, for example, if you're an engineer and you really know the, um, the, the, the civil engineering technical bit, but then you also have a really deep understanding of project management and tender writing processes. These are different domain expertise. And across the top of the M are the human skills. Those arches across the top, allow us to apply our domain expertise in different contexts. So these human skills are the interpersonal communication, the cross-cultural sensitivity, uh, the flexibility, the adaptability. These, in essence, are the leadership skills. So leading and managing, I'm not sure that's the right question anymore. It's around incorporating both that sense of human skills with our technical skills. That's a very interesting way to, to look at how those skills get linked together. And also how you can then take what you have and apply it in other um, contexts as well for other businesses. What does it mean then for a senior leader to be strategic? What are they doing that's different from everybody else in the organisation? There, there is a marked difference between executives who are operating at the executive level and those operating at the management level. And it's a really big gap. It's also a gap that is very difficult to see. <laughs> 
what for me is there's two key things about those that truly operate in that sort of um, at that more senior level, at that executive level. First of all, they are comfortable to sit in ambiguity. They don't feel this consistent desire to close, to solve, to tick off. They sit just about their whole day, their whole time in that ambiguous space, knowing that over time it'll make sense. So they're very, very comfortable. In fact, they encourage more ambiguity. They encourage that because that's the space where the thinking happens. So that's the first part. The second part is that they remove barriers. True executives should not be blocking out their diary full of meetings all the time. If, if you see an executive has got full of meetings, you sort of got to wonder where are they, where do they have the time to remove the barriers that are allowing other people to get on and do their work? Where is that? Where is that happening? So those are the two things, two things there. You also asked about being strategic and what does it mean to be strategic? Two elements to this. First of all, it's time horizon. How far out are we thinking about this impact of this decision? Executives are thinking three, five, years out in terms of the impact of what they're doing. Um, CEOs of very large multinational companies, they're thinking 20, 25 years out. They're thinking if we open this mine, for example, in Brazil or um, Western Africa, what's going to be the impact on society? And will there be the economic, environmental and social conditions that allow that mine to flourish in 25 years? That's where they're thinking that far out. So the time horizon is much further. They're also strategic is also about the impact across the system. How does every decision is what does this decision mean to all of the other parts of this interconnected system that we're operating in? And everything they're thinking about, they're thinking about the interconnectedness. They're thinking about how this influences, how that ripple effect might work. So it's those two things fundamentally what it is about being strategic. Dr. Edwin Trevor Roberts. Thank you for being on the show. It's been a very insightful conversation and I've certainly learned a lot about um, the psychological aspect of career and um, being a leader and also being a worker. So thank you very much. Most welcome. And for all of your listeners, go out there and just be curious. Explore the world. Go well. <laughs> Good advice there. Good advice from Dr. Edwin Trevor Roberts. Thanks for coming on the show. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.